The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. Can't see. We got any more hands up? Everybody get one? Anyone not get one? Yeah, we're good. Up, oh, back corner, right back there, guys. Right on. Second Corinthians chapter seven is where we're going to be, um, and I, we're going to do the whole chapter today. And that shouldn't scare you too much, I don't think. Um, but that's what we're going to do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through chapter seven, and then I'll open us up in prayer, and then we'll get going. Amen. Everybody there. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, since it's first, says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. And therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made about him to you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And I rejoice, because I have perfect confidence in you. Let's pray. God, we know that without your Holy Spirit, there's no understanding for spiritual things are discerned by our spirit, Lord. And so we pray, God, that even as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit would fill this place and that you would teach us. God, may you pour into those who need comfort. 
And may you encourage them. May you assure them. May your promises be brought to remembrance. And may they built up. Lord, may you come alongside those who need correction. And may it be received, Lord, with a still and joyful heart, knowing that you and your discipline is good for us. May you build up those that need encouragement. May you come alongside the morning. May you give motivation to those who are walking with you to serve others. Lord, what we're saying is, Lord, will you build up your church this morning? May your spirit speak to each of us. And Lord, may it go far beyond just some words that I could say. But Lord, may your word find fertile soil in the hearts of every man, woman, and child here. And may you speak specific application and direction to us that we might hear from you, our God. But also, God, that your word might encourage and build up this church corporately, Lord, to be a closer example of your gospel and minister of your gospel in the world around us. So, God, we bow before your word. We humble ourselves and we ask that your will would be done at Heritage Christian Fellowship just as it is in heaven. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. My King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name. Our God's people said. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, we are now over halfway through the book of 2 Corinthians. And for the next little while, we're going to actually be picking up a little bit of steam even as we go through this. So we are making our way rapidly towards Galatians, which I have to tell you, I cannot wait. Um, not because 2 Corinthians is hard, though it is, and I, I am looking forward. I'm, it's kind of the sophomore slump, I guess you could say. I'm ready to move on. But, but Galatians is going to be fun. Because Paul is ticked when he teaches in Galatians. And he says some stuff in there that's just like, we sh- if we were going to make bumper stickers, if we ever should take like phrases out of the Bible and make bumper stickers, there's some classics in Galatians. But no one would ever come to church if they read them, so we don't do that. But Galatians is going to be fantastic for us. Um, and I don't just mean entertaining. I mean, I think the Lord is going to use it to refine us, um, to, to show us again um, the trappings and the subtleties of religion and to bring the gospel to bear. And I think it's going to be super good for our church. So I'm fired up about that. But right now we're in 2 Corinthians and we're kind of making our way through. We're in chapter 7 here. We're going to do the whole thing. And uh, we're going to pick up speed here and do this whole chapter. Um, wh- one of the reasons really is that people don't like to teach from 2 Corinthians, especially in the middle. Um, 2 Corinthians is a difficult passage for a pastor to teach in the sense that um, other books of the Bible have way more material available to you to be able to stand on the shoulders and the works of godly men who have gone before us and done their homework and preached through the series and all those sorts of things. 2 Corinthians doesn't have anywhere near as much as others. Um, A lot of guys even who have written commentary series as they go through and they're like, you know, Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians and then no Second Corinthians, and right on into Galatians. And so I don't, I don't know exactly why that is. I do know the middle of the letter seems to somewhat feel repetitive. There's things here that we're going to be talking about here um, in this message today that you've heard me say before. Um, but repetition is the key to learning. And, and even Peter, when he's teaching in the New Testament, he says to them, look, I feel it right while I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you into remembrance of the things you have already learned. 
And so that really should happen. I, I, I hear a lot of times from people where there's things God's already stirring in your heart and things maybe you've already known and coming to church together and hearing the word procla- proclaimed here collectively like that a lot of times is not something that's new for you necessarily. It's something that reignites a passion or a knowledge or a verse or a calling that you already knew was there. So that's really the goal anyway. So rep- repetition shouldn't, shouldn't make us nervous. Um, it's tough for pastors because we always feel the pressure to say something new when we come up. Um, and that's a, that's a trap. That's a dangerous trap for a teacher of the Bible. Let the Bible stand for itself. Don't get creative. Um, but, but it's just the reality of it. And so there's things in here that can seem repetitive. Chapter 7 seems to be a reiteration of a narrative that we already know about. And it almost seems to be just disconjointed. Is it about Paul and his suffering? Or is it about Titus and what happened to him? Or is it about Corinth and how this letter came? Is it about regret? Is it about, what is it about? And so as I was reading through this and studying this, because we're not going to skip it. We're gonna, we want to receive the whole counsel of God. No matter what book, no matter what chapter, no matter what difficulty comes with it, we want to hear everything that God has to say to us because his wisdom's way beyond ours. And God forbid we should ever pick and choose in the Bible. Amen? So we're going to go through this, but we're going to do it all at once, all in one chapter, but, but not. And I have to confess, my intent earlier was like, I'm just going to get chapter 7 out of the way. Let's just do the whole thing and be done with it. Um, but, but now that I've studied and spent time on it over the weekend, I feel like the Lord's really shown me some things I'm excited to share with you because I think it has to come together. I think there's a thread that comes through it that is important for us to, to understand, to be able to grab and, and, and really, really take. It's an issue that I think we are not doing always very well on in the church, and that is how to be a friend. There's all sorts of books written about marriage, There's theology books. There's all sorts of things written about all sorts of topics, but it's amazing that you don't find a lot of resources, teachings, things like that out there, books written about just how do you just be a friend? How do you just love somebody and come alongside them and and deal with stuff when it comes your way? And how do you walk through those things? And this passage right here teaches us and teaches the church how to be a friend. And so, We're going to start reading through it. We just read through this, chapters 7, verses 1 through 16. And and when I first opened this up and started reading through it, just over and over and over, trying to really get a feel and the flow and studying through all these things, the first thing that really came to mind was a reiteration of something we have seen regularly as we've worked through this passage, and that is the issue of Paul's despair. But, But in the context of this idea of friendship, what had occurred to me, though, as I was reading this, is a reality that I think we all know And maybe we talk about it with close friends one-on-one, but we never talk about it corporately like this. And this is just the reality. Are you with me on this? Listen, it's risky to love people, right? Raise your hand if you have ever been burned by someone you loved in any shape or form, okay? All those people that raise their hand are in agreement. Everyone else is either lazy or lying, so we're all on the same page, right? It is risky to love people. To put yourself out there, especially biblical love. I'm not talking about worldly love that says I'm going to love someone because they make me feel good. I'm talking about the kind of love that says I have to do this even when I kind of want to kill them right now. That's risky. It's risky. And it can bring great difficulty. And for Paul, as has been for many of us before, it can bring despair, even straight up depression. 
Here in chapter 7 of Corinthians, Paul is exhibiting to us the reality of his despair and his depression. And he's giving us an account of what got him into this particular point. And so, repetition being the key, those of you that have been tracking with us over and over, you won't mind one more time. We need to understand the backstory of what's going on here because today especially, it matters. Paul is a pioneer missionary. Paul is not a guy that goes into a place with a lot of churches and plants another church. And he's not like a long-term pastor who goes and starts a church and says, I'm going to hang out and I'm going to shepherd this church to the rest of my life. There are men like that. In fact, he raises up men like that, like Timothy, for example. But that's not Paul. Paul had a very specific call in his life. His job, his calling, is to go into places that do not have the gospel, to plant a church there, raise up leaders around that church, raise up a pastor, and then he would move on to another place that also had not heard the gospel. And so Paul does this in Corinth. He comes into Corinth, which was a city that was a wreck of consumerism and paganism, sensuality. I mean, it was just a mess of a place. He goes into Corinth and he plants this church and he raises up leaders and then he moves on to the next place. And, and as he's there, he goes on to Ephesus and these other areas. Difficulty comes up. Shocker, right? I mean, think about it. You just show up in town, you plan a church, raise up some leaders. They don't even have the New Testament yet to be able to read. He's still sort of writing it. And then he just leaves. And so he leaves this group of people, granted, with the Holy Spirit as their guide, no doubt. But look, you know, you got to work through some stuff. you got to learn some things. And look at some of the messes we see churches get into when we do have the full counsel of God and centuries of church history to look back on. But they didn't have any of that. So it's not a shocker that they would end up with some difficulties that Paul might have to address things, maybe give them a tune-up. Now, you don't expect people to be sleeping with their mom, and you don't expect the kind of division and difficulties that Corinth did get into. We can say they are an example, a worst-case scenario type example for sure. And so Paul hears about all this stuff going on, and he writes them a letter. We know that letter as what? Somebody knows it, they just whispered it. First Corinthians, speak boldly, be confident in the Lord. First Corinthians, that's the letter that Paul writes to the church to deal with stuff. He basically is saying, what are you doing? You are God's children, you are the church. Why are you dividing? Why are you suing one another? Why are you so puffed up with pride? Why is there this sensuality? And he deals with a lot of these issues. And so some time goes by, a few years goes by. And a group of men come into Corinth that Paul will later refer to as super apostles, and he does so sarcastically. A group of men come in, and they begin to teach and influence the church in Corinth, but with a completely different gospel. They're, not, they're saying, hey, this guy Paul that started this church and poured into you guys, and he's always talking about this Christian life and suffering and pick up your cross and how we, we die daily and all those kind of things, that's baloney. In fact, I don't even think he's really called by God. If he was really an apostle of God, I mean, look at the guy. He's short, fat, ugly, beat up. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beat by snakes. Everything he touched, beat by snakes, bit by snakes. Every single thing he touches seems to just be a disaster and be painful and suffering. Clearly, God does not have his anointing hand on a guy like that. Here's what God does. You're God's children, so he loves you. And these guys, they're polished. They got it all together. They're the original prosperity, college, uh, prosperity theology people. And so they're saying, you should follow us. Ignore that guy. And they're throwing Paul under the bus left and right. 
and it breaks Paul's heart because he loves them. He refers to them as their spiritual father, and he desperately loves them. And so we know that he makes his way back to Corinth at some point, wanting to deal with this, wanting to help them. He doesn't want them to fall prey to false theology. He doesn't want them to, I mean, he just loves them. And so the fact that they're ridiculing him and that they're separating from him, it's breaking his heart. So he goes to Corinth to go try to deal with this. And when he gets there, the door is slammed in his face and he's essentially run out of town on a rail. And so he is devastated. So at this point, he goes back, as we learn from this text, and he sits down and he writes them another letter. Not 2 Corinthians. He's still writing this one at this point. He writes them another letter that's referred to as the severe letter or the difficult letter or the harsh letter, depending on translations. And he writes them this letter that is painful for him to sin, but it is calling them out for their sin and the difficulty that's going And I got to say, I can't imagine what he wrote if that's the harsh letter. Because wait till you see Galatians. He literally says to you guys, I wish you would just castrate yourselves. That's in Galatians. So what did he say to the Corinthians? We can only imagine. But he writes them this harsh letter dealing with what's going on. And he sends it. And he waits for a response. And he's not getting one. And he's broken. And he's hurting. And he's anxious. And he wants to know things are going okay. And so he takes Titus. And he says, Titus, look, I got, I got work that I'm doing right now. I need you to do something for me. I need you to go to the Corinthians and go find out how they've responded to that letter. To which Titus must have gone, you must be joking me. Okay, you're the Apostle Paul. You went. They ran you out of town. Then you wrote that letter and you want me to go check on them and see how they're doing? No thanks. But apparently Paul goes, no, you don't understand They're deceived, and there's stuff that's going on, but I love them, and they're good people. They are Christian, godly people. They're just struggling right now, and he goes on, as we saw, as we read through the whole thing, and he brags about them. Isn't that amazing? These people that have totally rejected him, and he's pouring out. He's like, no, they're good people, and he literally is bragging about them. And so Titus is like, all right. And you can get this sense that, that Titus went reluctantly because he comes back like what? He's like relieved, like, whoo, it was just like you said. I didn't think it was gonna be, but those guys were okay. But Paul doesn't know this yet. So he sends Titus to go get the response. And he tells Titus, I'll meet you in Macedonia. We'll find out, you go, see how things are going. I got some work to do. Come back over here, meet me there and give me a report of what's going on. And so Paul goes to Macedonia. And when he gets there, no Titus. He's waiting, no Titus. And then in addition to that, he deals with struggle after struggle after struggle. He finds great opposition from both believers and non-believers in Macedonia. They come against him with force. And then he's dealing with internal struggles that we'll get to again in just a minute. It says that he found pressure and fears inside and out. He's dealing with these major difficulties there in Macedonia. And he is in despair, literally depression. Now, I know a lot of people shudder. You can't say that. You cannot say that an apostle of Jesus Christ was depressed. I don't have to because the Bible does. It says in verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast. That's the word depression, the depressed. And when you read through the flow of Paul's writings, especially 2 Corinthians, it is clear this man is bottoming out. He is struggling. He is opening up about his heart. He says that there are places that he despised or despaired even of life. 
He just would just assume die and be done with this. And he was wrecked with despair and difficulty. Now we as Christians, we've addressed this before, but I'm gonna reiterate it again. We, we have a difficult time addressing or looking at issues of depression in people even around us and in our churches here today because there's still so much stigma around depressions and anxieties and mental disorders and all those kinds of things. We still, we struggle with that. The mind is the one area. Like we will allow our bodies to be broken and need help in every other area except the mind for some reason. And we feel that that area can't get, because if you're a Christian, you're not gonna go there. And even if you did there, it's because you're in sin and that's selfishness and you're thinking too much about yourself and, and you just can't go there. But, and, and this is Paul, this is Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You're like, Paul can't be depressed. He's not even afraid to die in Philippians. So what's going on? How can Paul be dealing with this? But the reality is even some of our greatest heroes in church history and throughout the faith have wrestled with despair and anxiety and discouragement at times. C.H. Spurgeon, if you're anyone here that either wrestles with depression or you are friends with people that wrestle with them, you should read some stuff by C.H. Spurgeon. You should look it up. He's the prince of preachers, maybe the greatest preacher that has ever lived. And he one time absolutely stunned his congregation by coming clean about his own continual and major bouts with depression. He said one time in a sermon, I am the subject of depressions of spirit that are so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to the extremes of wretchedness that I go to. And the congregation was stunned. And he's written many sermons dealing with what he's gone through and pointing people to the hope in Jesus Christ. Those, that's real stuff. And Paul is depressed and he's struggling. But here, here's the difference. Now, yeah, are there some people that they get into depression because they're completely self-focused and they're only thinking about their own problems and they're selfish or they're, they're desiring the wrong things? Does that happen? Absolutely it does. But that's not everybody. There's a lot of different kinds of depression. There's clinical depression where people just have disorders or, or imbalances, chemical imbalances that may need medication to repair and to deal with. There's situational depression where something might happen to you, a tragedy, the loss of a loved one, cancer, unemployment, those sorts of things can be absolutely crippling. It almost took my mother from me when my father left our family. And my mom, she was the pillar rock Christian woman who no way she's ever getting depressed and she almost killed herself because of the pit of despair. I've seen it with my own eyes. There's situational depression like that, but, but sometimes there's the type of depression that is the result of a really noble cause, and that is just the fact that we have great, great love for someone else. That's Paul's issue. That was Spurgeon's issue. That's been many preachers and ministers and people that have been used by God throughout history. People that had such a burden for someone else that they were grieved when things did not go well. We see this in Paul over and over and over in his writings. For example, in the book of Galatians, he says this, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. That he's got these people that he has given his life to pouring into and building up and encouraging. And he, he knows the truth of the gospel. And he knows the truth of Jesus. And he just wants them to do well so bad. And when he sees them drifting away from the gospel, and in Galatia, not just drifting away from the gospel, but drifting back to the kind of legalism and Jewish influences that God had saved Paul from. 
And he's broken and he's like, I, I'm just fearful that I've labored over you in vain, that I've poured into you and that you're rejecting all of these things because he loves them and he wants them to do well. The Thessalonians, he writes to them and says, for this reason, I could bear it no longer. So I sent to learn about your faith because of fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that all of our labor would be in vain. So I love you. And I poured into you and I couldn't take it anymore. I had to send someone to check on you because I was fearful that Satan had tricked you and led you astray and that all of this would be for nothing. And then later in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, he'll write to this church in this letter and he says, apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? This was the burden Paul carried. And Paul's not afraid to die. I mean, I'm not saying he was looking forward to it, but Paul, Paul, when he says to live is Christ, to die is gain, he meant that. He wrote that stuff in prison. Like Paul wasn't afraid. What, what drove Paul to the pits of despair was an anxiety that he said he carried every single day, a burden, you might say, for the churches. God had given him such a heart for these people. And he had such a genuine love for these people that there were times when he was rejected by those he loved, when he was kicked to the curb by those he had spent so much time pouring into that it weighed heavily on him. And there were times where he was depressed. It's absolutely real because loving sinners is risky. Amen for everyone in here who happens to be a sinner wasn't very enthusiastic, but then I guess it shouldn't be, right? Amen? So every one of us is a sinner, and everyone you love, even that beautiful little baby you just had, everyone you love is a sinner and is subject to temptations by Satan. And so when you love someone, especially Christian love, like Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians, the kind of love that pours into someone regardless of what they deserve or regardless of what they give back to you, that is emotionally risky. And a lot of us have been burned before and reacted negatively to those things before. You, you have this temptation, like I've been burned, so I'm not doing this anymore. And Paul goes the other way. He just keeps pushing and pushing, and it was risky. It's going to be painful to love people. That's just the reality of it. And we've learned that lesson before, right? But there's something, a couple of things even that we can learn from Paul, even in this letter right here, that's really important and really valuable for us to understand. One is how God met Paul during his depression and despair. And the other is how Paul reacted to those that had burned him. So the first one is this. How did God meet Paul in his depression? Paul, he's in despair. He feels alone. He's in Macedonia. There's no one is coming to him. Titus isn't there. No one's around. He's got opposition from the Macedonians. He's got internal conflict he's dealing with. What is it that God did? Or maybe even specifically, we could make this personal today. When you have been in situations, whether it would be considered a clinical depression or not, when you, we've all been in places of discouragement and despair at times. So whenever we're in those situations, how does God meet us? Well, I'll tell you how we want God to meet us. We want God to meet us the way God met Elijah. Do you guys know the story of Elijah? He was a prophet of God who had been chosen to speak God's word to a culture that wanted nothing to do with God's word. 
And so he has this great showdown, maybe you learned in Sunday school, with the prophets of Baal where they call down fire from heaven on the altars. And God shows himself to be the true God. And then Elijah goes full on ninja on them and kills all these prophets of God. It's this, or no, not prophets of God, I'm sorry, prophets of Baal. And it's this incredible victory. It's like the Super Bowl of all the Old Testament prophet showdowns. It's a massive victory. But there's a woman, the queen, Jezebel. She's the reason the Baal altars are even in town in the first place. And she gets word of what's happened. And she is not happy and not convinced. And so she issues a threat. You tell Elijah, I'm coming. I will not rest until Elijah is put to death. And Elijah goes from this pinnacle of success to absolute pit despair. He runs for miles. Some would say as many as more than 100 miles away. On foot, big deal. And we find him alone, no one around, not eating, not resting, not sleeping, and he is completely convinced he's alone. He says his prayer to God is, I'm the only one left. That's depression. That's despair. Even physically, many of you guys have been through that where you've dealt with those things and you don't eat because you just can't and you feel like you're completely alone. That is absolute depression. So we read this story and then you read this beautiful account of how God met Elijah. It says that God came to him. Some would argue that that was Jesus himself in the flesh came to Elijah and feeds him and causes him to rest and sleep and get the rest that he desperately needed and encourages him, and he says, you are not alone. There are many people who have not bowed their knee to these false idols. Man, I am with you, and the Bible talks about how there was an earthquake, and there was a fire, and then God spoke, though, to Elijah in this still, small voice. That's what we want. Anybody be down for that when you're in difficulty? I know I would, because we can relate to Elijah, usually up to the point where suddenly God's feeding us and taking care of us and doing that stuff, and so what can happen is, when we go into despair, despair and difficulty and all these things, we can go, Lord, give me that. Like, Lord, give me that miraculous you show up and fix everything in an instant and you take it all away. That's what I want, Jesus. Will you do that for me? But what I would argue is that God does that. It just doesn't always look as miraculous as maybe it did in Elijah's day. Consider Paul. How did God comfort Paul? Right here in our text. How did God comfort Paul? It says in verse six, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of who? Titus. He sent him his friend. Just as simple and beautiful as that. He sent him a friend. A friend who came and encouraged him, gave good report, reminded him of the good things that God is doing, Helped him feel that he wasn't alone when he was surrounded by everyone who was coming against him. He just sent him a friend. And this is what God uses the church for. God still miraculously reaches out to those in despair and in difficulty. But he does it, and you might say, still through the still small voice of just sending a friend. And, and not, not always a counselor, though that's important. Especially people that you can get so deep into some of those things that you need help to sort that stuff out. And if anyone here is in that condition, in that place, I pray 
that you'd be able to fight back any sort of stigmas or anything and reach out and get help. Come to us. Let us help you get to someone who can help you. But a lot of times, the most comfort that we can receive when we're in a difficult situation is a friend just comes and is just there. Just there. You don't have to know all the answers. If you have a friend with depression, you don't have to study it all. Just there. There's been scientific studies, and some of these are horrible. Those are animal rights people. Like, this is old school stuff, I think. Um, but there's been studies where they took, like, chimpanzees and animals and stuff, and they put them in these closed, isolated rooms. And they would do things like play really loud music, or there would be flashing lights and all sorts of things to be able to stimulate anxiety and fear and stress on these animals. And I think they have done it since then with humans as well. And so people go in here, there's lights, there's noise, there's all this stuff, and tension just builds and it builds and it builds. And over and over and over, at a certain point, the subject that was in that room would just shut down. Ball up in a corner. Oh, there might be a season where they're trying to find a way out, trying to deal with it, whatever the case may be. But at a certain point, the stress was so much, they just shut down. And they would find them, literally, animal and human, just sitting in a corner alone, shut down. And so then they tried something different. They did everything exactly the same. They just took another animal or another monkey or another human and just put them in there. No talking, no interaction, nothing. Just put them in the room. All the same stuff, still coming at them like crazy. And they can scientifically actually regulate or measure, I should say, all these things, the stress levels, the anxiety, all that's going on. And they found in every single case, when they would put the second subject in the room with the other one, the anxiety and stress levels would go down by at least 50% every time. There's no counsel coming in. No medicines, none of that, just having someone there. It's as if the Bible says that we should bear one another's burdens, right? This is called incarnational ministry because the reality is is that Jesus, knowing we were in despair, knowing we were apart from him, that we were alone in our sin with no help for savior or salvation whatsoever, Jesus incarnated himself into our world. He identified himself with our problems. The scriptures say he was a man who was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows and he came incarnated himself in flesh and blood to be with us in our mess. And then Jesus said to the apostles, look, I'm here with you, and my interaction with you is not going to continue anymore. I'm going to go away, but I have to because something better is coming. I'm sending, what does he call it? The comforter, the Holy Spirit. And you're going to receive him, and you're going to receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so now, when people are in difficulty and despair and discouragement, I would argue that Jesus deals and helps with our discouragement and despair in the exact same way. But he sends us. Now, now here's the key. And, And Christians, listen up. Heritage, church, listen. Most of the time, if not all the time, it's not the depressed person or the discouraged person or the despaired person raising a hand and saying, can someone help me? Usually, it's the still small voice in the ear of the sent one that says, go check on them. You ever had that happen? You ever felt like the Holy Spirit just put a bug in your ear? You know, you haven't seen so-and-so in a while. Just give them a call. And then you make that call and find out there was stuff going down. You ever had that happen? Oh, that we would be in tune and obedient to those still, small voices that say, check on Steve. Check on Susan. 
Just give her a call. And we can freak ourselves out thinking, oh, there's something going on. I got to get the pastor. I'll tell you right now, I don't know. But I have the Spirit. And there's been time and time and time again where, where the Holy Spirit has whispered into my ear. He, with my mother, he's done that before. He, I've literally had times where I just felt like, I need to call my mom. Called her up, and she answered the phone crying. Like, that's happened. And I could, we could probably all stick a hand up of times. Do it. How many of you have ever had an experience like that? Where God said, contact someone, and you found out they needed you. Hand up nice and high. This is how the church ministers this is how Jesus reaches out to the despairing, that we become a friend to those who are in need. And we bear one another's burdens. Isn't it amazing? You just put the extra person in the room and the stress level's cut in half. And this is the privilege that we have, to just sit with someone in despair and throw an arm around them and remind them that Jesus is with them and remind them that they're not alone. I pray that we would listen to that voice and be obedient and it's awkward. I'm going to tell you, some of you guys especially, it's awkward. We don't tend to have those kind of chats. The Spirit's like, call Bob. Hey, Bob, how you feeling? Like, we don't tend to do that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I'm telling you, man, sometimes the people with the toughest exterior and the biggest walls we put up are the ones that are hurting the most. And it's risky to love people. But oh, that we would take that risk. Amen? The second thing we see here is how Paul reacted to them. I mean, does Paul not have every reason in the world to just cut and run? I mean, if anyone had the right, Paul writes them, he plants the church, he writes them, he visits them, he sends people, he writes another letter, rejected, 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 sin, sin, sin. He gets burned and burned and burned and burned. But what we see in this text is that Paul fights for them, even when they are fighting against him. And we need this in the church too. We don't understand the value of friendships. And so we'll throw them aside. We can get another one on Facebook with the click of a button. But we need to fight for our friendships, even when people are rejecting us. I mean, Paul, he's in there. He's fighting for them. And he's willingly doing so, repeatedly submitting himself to difficulty over and over and over for the sake of his friend. He's doing what he writes in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul placed a higher value on his friendships and on those he loved than he did on his own comfort, his own fears, his own anxiety, and he would willingly submit himself to that sort of despair and that sort of discouragement because he truly believed it when he wrote that love bears all things, that love never fails. He didn't just write that because he knew we would need Valentine's Day cards. He wrote that because he believed it with his heart. And you know why he believed it with his heart? Because that's what Jesus did for him. He was killing Christians when God came for him. And what does Jesus say to him when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus? Why are you kicking against the goats? Paraphrase, why are you fighting me, Paul? I love you. I care for you. I am interested in you. I am for you. Stop fighting with me. But he pursued until Paul submitted. And he does this for us too, does he not? Doesn't he pursue? Doesn't the gospel promise us that that's what he does? God bless you. 
Did no one else say God bless you? Love people, Christians. Come on, man. I'm starting all over. Go back to the beginning. This is the reality. Now, let, now let, me, let, me paraphr- let, let, me, let me put a little disclaimer in there. There is a real need in a lot of different areas to have boundaries that are safe regarding relationships, okay? So in no way am I ever saying that we should submit ourselves to relationships that are dangerous for you at all. But, but we don't just throw friendships aside as easily. We shouldn't just throw friendships aside as easily as we do today. Unfriend, done. That's all we have to do anymore. And for the dumbest things in the world. But if we truly understood the role of the church, that God has put us in one another's lives for our own betterment and for theirs and for the cause of the kingdom of God in the world around us, if we really understood how much we actually need one another, maybe we would value those relationships just a little bit more and maybe we would just kind of look at these things and go, you know what, this is worth fighting for. It's difficult, it's hard, it's painful, but I'm not gonna bail. I'm gonna have the guts to pick up the phone and say, look, I know you hate me right now, but can we chat? And when they hang up on you, you write them the letter. You might have to write them a harsh letter. Now, that's the key, too. Notice this. Paul loves them, and he fights for them, but he's not always just mushy, it's okay. Like, he's not always that, right? Because a real friend comes to someone when they've been overtaken in sin. That's what Galatians says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So it's important that a friend comforts another friend. Would we all agree? You can say amen. Do we all agree? Okay. But it's just as important that a friend is willing to confront. If you think the words are so close, it's just as important that a friend is willing to confront a friend. And that's what Paul's doing here. He loves them. It would have been so much easier for him to just back off and say, because I love you so much, I can't write this harsh letter because what might they say? They might reject me forever. What, I don't know what to do here. I'm just going to back out. It would be easier if I just leave it alone. But Paul, led by the Spirit, continues to pursue, even when it means he has to say some harsh things. Just as the Scriptures say, faithful are the wounds of a friend. When a friend in humility and love comes to you and says, I love you. And because I love you, I've got to bring this to your attention. I'm seeing something here that's dangerous I'm seeing something here you're caught up in. Maybe you don't see it, or maybe you're just being a jerk, but whatever the case is, I love you, and I'm willing to have this hard conversation with you. But, but listen, when you do that, listen to me on this one. Some of you might already be writing names. I'm going to call so-and-so, and I'm going to call. Hear me now. Number one, don't call me. Number two, <laughs> listen, check your motivations, Check your motivations. Paul gives us a really important clue to this in this text. Look at verse 12. So although I wrote you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong. In other words, that guy that did that to me when I came to town, I didn't write you just to get even with him. I didn't write you just so that we could run him out of town on a rail now the way he did me. I wasn't just trying to get even or win the argument. But he also says this, look. Nor was it for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. Who suffered the wrong? Come on, you know it, say it. Paul did. What does that mean? It means he wasn't doing it out of selfish ambition, as Philippians says. It wasn't, you hurt me. It wasn't self-focused. It was, 
I am worried about you because I love you. And I want to see us restored for your sake and for your glory and not mine. And so Paul had the guts to write them and confront them, but his motivations were godly and gospel-centered and pure. He wasn't trying to get even, and he wasn't trying to deal with it so that it took away or alleviated some of his own pain. It was for their sake that he had the guts to, if you will, pick up the phone and get a hold of them. Now, one last thing before we're done. None of this is easy, right? Has any of this been easy? It's because loving people is what? It's risky. Loving people is risky. It's not easy. In fact, maybe the only thing that's harder than being the one who will make a phone call like that or reach out to a friend like that is when you actually get the phone call like that, right? When your friend comes to you and says, hey, something's up here. Boy, I don't know about you, my sinfulness, a lot of times I don't tend to deal with that kind of stuff really well. Defenses can come up. Oh, oh yeah? Well, what about you? And all those sorts of things. But I know this much. For anyone in the church, for those who have the Holy Spirit within them, oh, there might be moments of anxiety or anger or offense at the beginning, and there's reactions that sometimes we're just stuck in. I get all that stuff, but, but when things start to settle and you have an opportunity to process it, someone's come to you and they're saying, what's going on? Or they've called out your sin or your difficulty. The result of that, if you're a Christian, is always gonna be some form of grief. Some form of grief. It's either gonna be the worldly grief or it's going to be godly grief. And they're dramatically different. This is what Paul alludes to here. He says in verse 10, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When sin is confronted and when difficulty is confronted, the end result is grief. And the type of grief you're experiencing will show you where your heart is. So for example, David is the king, most powerful man in all the land. And one day he's on his roof and he sees a woman, and he takes her, has her husband killed, impregnates her. It's a horrific scandal. But he's the king. Who's going to call out the king? Nobody, right? No, God sends him a friend. God takes a guy named Nathan, a prophet, who's going to speak on behalf of God, and Nathan goes to David, and he says, David, how are you, man? I got a story for you. There was this guy, had a whole bunch of sheep, fancy, wealthy guy, tons of sheep. This one guy over here just had one. And the guy came and took his sheep and just totally robbed him and just destroyed this guy's whole life. And he loved this sheep, but the guy just took it from him. Can you believe that? David's fired up because it's really easy for us to get fired up about other people's sin, right? Not so much our own, really easy someone else's. So David hears this story. Who is he, man? I will deal with this today. My kingdom is about justice, and this is wrong. That guy had all those sheep. How many sheep? Oh, he's, can I say deep sheep? I don't think I can say that, right? Is that bad? <laughs> I'm going to get emails now. <laughs> Jeff, I need to have a hard talk with you. Anyway, <laughs> forgive me. So, so David's like, let's get him, man. I'm fired up. Let's get this guy. And then Nathan goes, David, you're the man. David, you're the man. Now, don't think for a second that David's conscience wasn't pricked. Don't think for a second that David was some uber-spiritual guy who that thing didn't bother him. I guarantee you, when you look at his story, I mean, just read the Psalms. Some of his Psalms are like, Lord, kill him and smash his kids against rocks, please. 
So like David had flesh, right? So don't think for a second that David wasn't initially like, what? I mean, I, I will give people the, we should give one another the grace to deal with that because we are all of the flesh and we are all wrestling against the flesh. Some of us to a greater degree than others, but there's a sin nature that we all still have, amen? But David processes this thing and his response is amazing. He says in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. There was a godly grief about David's awareness of his own sin that resulted in his own salvation in his own life. And so when someone comes to you and you have a chance to think about this stuff and process this stuff and you realize, man, that, he's right. I don't want to see him right now and I really don't want to admit he was right, but he was right. Especially if you're married, that can be even harder. But when you get to that place where you're like, you know what, but he's right. This is the Lord. And you can allow that sort of grief to produce repentance in you, you will find it will bring salvation and life to your relationships. Your marriage will be brighter. Your friendships will be stronger. Your walk with God will be closer. It's not me just making this up. This is what the scriptures teach us. But... If the grief you experience is nothing but a worldly grief, that means that you're just mad. He hurt your feelings. Who's he to call me out? Who's he to say these kind of things? You have the kind of grief that Judas had. When we looked at it just this week in our midweek Bible study, when this woman's pouring out this expensive perfume and Judas speaks up and says, hey, why would you let her do that? We could have sold that and we could have bought food for all kinds of people that were poor. But the scriptures tell us that Judas's heart wasn't really about the poor. He was in sin, and his desire was to get that money himself because he would steal from the disciples' treasury. And Jesus says to him, leave her alone, Judas. She's chose what's best. Leave her alone. And in that moment, Judas left the disciples, and it says in the book of Mark, from that moment on, he went and he sought how he could sell Jesus and betray him at that point. He was done at that point. His motives were only his kingdom, only his world. He wanted his money. He wanted his things. And the moment Jesus said, knock it off, this is what we're looking at, worship of God and a close relationship with me, then Judas said, then I'm out. And six days later, he killed himself. That's worldly grief. Oh, that God might give us the ability by his spirit to discern what's going on, the strength to be able to repent from our sin in humility, and to repent for the way we reacted when people pointed out our sin. And to allow God's godly, not worldly, but godly grief to produce repentance in our hearts that brings life to the world around us, our relationships, our church, and to the world around us as well. Because there is worldly grief everywhere. And people need friends that will forgive them and stand by them. They need people that will do for them what Jesus has done for us. Because he's our model in this. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That there was no one who was seeking him. No one went, Jesus, I, I need you because I got problems. But that no, God knew our problems and sent Jesus. And that he pursued us. And that he chased us down. And he relentlessly pursued our hearts. He gave his life for us. He died on the cross for us. He carried sin for us. He didn't share the burden of sin for us. He took all the burden of sin for us. And all the punishment of sin for us. He died for us. This is our model. 
that we would go to those who maybe even are our enemies and say, because of what Christ has done for me, I will do this for them. And that we would seek to show the kind of unconditional love that the world so desperately needs. Remember when you learned that? Remember when like God loves you no matter what? How that felt? Even reading that or singing that song, good, good father, that he loves us in spite of all the stuff that we did yesterday, this morning, they need that. The world needs this. And we need each other if we're going to fulfill the mission that God has given us. So Heritage, may we grow in our forgiveness and grace for one another. May we be slow to discard relationships. May we all grow in repentance and humility and love for one another. And may we carry that same kind of love and that same kind of friendship outside the walls of the church building and practice, if you will, church for those around us as well. I think we will be blessed and find salvation not just for us but for those out there as well if we do. Amen? Will you stand and pray with me? God, I thank you so much that you are a friend indeed. That greater love has no man shown his friend that he would lay his life down for him. I thank you for the reality of your gospel and the motivation by which we can love others. I pray, God, that you would just equip us, God, by your grace with your spirit. And I pray, God, that our motivation for all of these things would not be that we're trying to have more friends ourselves or have more comfort ourselves or any of those things, but may our motivation for this, Lord, be the reality that we have such a friend in Jesus. Lord, that you have carried our sin to the cross. You have bore our shame. You became acquainted with our sorrows and our grief. And you pursued us, even when there was nothing about us that was worthy of being pursued. Thank you for that grace, Lord. That grace that is greater than all of our sin. And God, may you continue to break us down and build us back up with your grace that we might show that same grace to others. Lord, may you empower. There are people in this room right now that know they have phone calls to make, whether it be to repent over relationships they've thrown away or people that you've put even on their heart now that you know need a friend. And I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would come upon every single person here and encourage and equip them for this mission, that you might send them out into the community, into their homes, that there might be repentance in our marriages, that there might be repentance in our workplaces, and that your grace might bring salvation. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Lift up your voices, sing this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Sing the second verse. Have
have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Sing this out loud. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Go be a friend to someone in need. See you Wednesday night.